Welcome in to another edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida. And in the center of the screen, we have the voice of the Ohio State Buckeyes, Paul Keels, who joins us from his home in Ohio. And Paul, we're just glad that football is almost here for the Buckeyes. Uh, what's this last few weeks been like uh, getting ready for a season that a few months ago maybe you thought you wouldn't have? Well, it's everybody's anticipation has really increased, Roger, because of the fact now we know there will be a season. Uh, but also cautious optimism, hoping that, you know, the players and coaches follow all of the guidelines that they're supposed to, to stay healthy so that there aren't any hiccups like we're seeing in other places. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, kind of crazy for a few months when we got an abbreviated schedule and then a few days later the Big Ten postponed the season. And, uh, you know, as everybody knows, it wasn't a good look for the Big Ten, but uh, there was some squeaky wheels who brought about some good results and everybody's excited that a season is going to get here. We just hope that it gets here and there's not uh, there's minimal, if any, interruptions. So how do you spend the last few weeks or at least the opening portion of the college football season without the Big Ten? Are you listening to other radio broadcasts just every Saturday itching to get going and, and knowing that you can't be in that broadcast booth for those first few Saturdays? Uh, how, how tough has it been for you to kind of see everybody else playing but the Big Ten holding off for a little bit? Well, Kyle, it's been different, especially when we didn't know if the Big Ten was going to come about. What our network and our station did was started re-airing some old games. We began with uh, and doing that on Saturdays, and we were doing some live segments around it. We began with a 2002 game in which Ohio State had a last-second win, almost a last-second win over Purdue in route to getting a national championship. Uh, we did the 95 Rose Bowl game with Arizona State. Uh, or I'm sorry, it was 97, and we did the 95 Ohio State-Notre uh, Dame game. So we've been doing all of that. Um, our regular radio station stuff, like um, you guys, I'm sure, we've been doing a lot of our sportscasts and everything from home. Uh, and then once we knew the season was starting, we about a month ago, we started doing our weekly uh, radio show with Ryan Day and have started stockpiling some of our pregame interviews and figuring out things like uh, travel, no travel, all of that. And uh, so it's, it, it's been a, quite a buildup to what's going to hit us next week. And we talked about this before we went live, but what's your travel situation going to be like this year? I know it varies from school to school. And, and if you do have the opportunity to call games off of monitors and have those remote broadcasts, have, have you done that before? Is that something that you've done in the past? No, I have not, Kyle. As of now, we are not going to travel. And, you know, there's a number of things that come into play. Mostly the company that owns our radio station is uh, still prohibiting corporate travel. So we will now, I've been told that there's possibility that could change, but uh, most likely it won't. So um, don't know the particulars of what our remote situation is going to be. It'll be someplace uh, on the Ohio State campus. I know that, you know, what they've done through the summer with baseball and hockey and basketball and a lot of the other college outlets have done it remotely. I've never done it before. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of video access we'll have to be able to do it. Um, you know, I, to be honest, I'm not going to miss the traveling part of it, but, you know, not doing a game from not being in the stadium and not seeing it uh, will be a challenge. But, you know, other people have been doing it and we'll make the best out of it and do the best we can with it. Well, it's just another part of what's been a really incredible career for you. And if you could just tell us about the spark for you, why did you want to get into broadcasting? Who are some of the voices that had an impact on you in your younger days before you ever picked up a microphone? Well, Roger, a lot of it was because I had no ability to be an athlete, so I figured it was a good way to be around athletics. Uh, but I grew up in Cincinnati and was very fortunate uh, by the time I was starting to pay attention to sports in the, the mid to late 1960s, uh, listening to the Reds. 
with announcers like Jim McIntyre, Joe Nuxall, and then eventually Al Michaels and Marty Brenneman. Uh, at that time, we had an NBA team in Cincinnati, the Royals, who are now the Sacramento Kings, and spent a lot of time listening to a gentleman uh, who has since passed on, uh, Dom Valentino, doing basketball. Uh, when the Bengals came into existence in the late 60s, uh, probably the football announcer I listened to the most was Phil Sant, who was the original voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, and from there, we also had the college influence of uh, University of Cincinnati, Xavier, and of course, Ohio State. Um, Marv Holman, who was the announcer that I listened to mostly doing Ohio State games, had also been their sports information director. But there was a real connection with radio and listening to these guys, whether you were at home or in a car with your parents or something. And, and that's what really bit me, the fact that you could listen to a game, hear descriptions of what the stadium sounded like or looked like, what the players were doing, their stats, but also listening to their skills. Um, it just, to me, it, it really hooked me about how great it is to be part of a connection of bringing to a passionate fan base uh, the details of a team that they care so much about. So you were able to hear all those voices and understand you did have an interest and liking in this profession, perhaps. Uh, what were some of the first steps you took? Well, I was fortunate enough in attending Xavier University in Cincinnati. We had a student radio station who, by the way, uh, just last week celebrated their 50th anniversary. And our student station was involved in doing high school football. And so we had a rotation of different students that majored in communications that had the chance to do high school football. Uh, and I was fortunate to be part of that. Uh, also at the time, there were no commercial stations in Cincinnati that were broadcasting Xavier basketball. So we as a student station got involved in that. They hired a professional and a play-by-play announcer, a gentleman who had played at Xavier and then played in the NBA and ABA by the name of Dave Piontek. And all of us as students would take turns working as analysts with Dave Piontek. Um, so it was a great experience from there to be able to get involved in doing some of those things. And that kind of helped open the door for me to, to get involved uh, commercially in broadcasting. Did you have any rude awakenings? And when everybody starts out in this business, we, we obviously don't make a whole lot of money. And, and we have stories, nightmare broadcast stories. Uh, I know I have mine of doing games on the top of a press box and 20 degree weather and it's snowing. And you can hear my teeth chattering on the air. Do you have any of those types of stories where early you just you wonder like, man, am I going to continue to be able to do this? Because this is rough. I, Kyle, the first high school football game broadcast I was involved in, and it was as a student in college. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned being on the roof. Uh, I went with the other students to the game we were doing, and it was for my alma mater. Um, but I was not going to be one of the announcers on the air. And my responsibility that first game was to stand on the roof of the press box with a directional antenna and through the whole game, keep it pointed toward where our campus was, even though we were about 20 miles away. Um, and that was one, and you know, it wasn't that it was freezing cold or anything like that, but it was one where I thought, okay, uh, I, this isn't a part of it that's really appealing to me. And after a while, when I got involved in the on-air part of it, that kind of did away with some of the concern from that. But the other, that was one where at first I had to wonder, <clears throat> is this really going to be the thing to do? But I knew that was just like an initial step. Yeah, we all have those nightmares. But for you, in terms of the play-by-play -play craft side of it, how long did it take to build? And you mentioned a lot of the guys that you listened to and helped mold who you are today. But how long did it take for you to get that good play-by-play -play foundation? Still looking for it, Kyle. I'm one of those people that still thinks that you always have to try and learn and you always have to try and improve and get better. But, you know, listening to other people uh, certainly is a great thing to do. Uh, just hearing how people, you know, for the enjoyment of listening to a live event, but also getting some ideas. But also very early on, uh, you know, back in the 1980s and my 20s, it became clear to me that 
you kind of had to let your own style develop. Yes, there would be an announcer that you listened to that you liked and you maybe would like to form some things like that. Um, but you also didn't want to come off as a bad imitation of somebody else. So, it, and it's something that, you know, we still focus on. And I'm very fortunate that at our network, we have a producer who's had a lot of on-air experience, but he has a good ear and he's always very good about reminding you of things. You know, assume that people listening aren't Ohio State fans. They don't always know who this player is by name, if that they're on Ohio State's team or they're on the opposite team. And uh, the other part is also being mindful of, of time and score and down and distance and location. Uh, it's funny, I, a number of years ago, I got an email from a listener who was complaining that I gave the score on the time too much. And I replied to him and says, yeah, but you know what the score on the time is, don't you? So it's one of those things that you, you listen back to your own work. Uh, everybody's always their own worst critic. Uh, but you try and listen to it with a, a critiquing ear, but also a constructive ear and how you can improve. But it also does help listening to other people just to see how they approach things. And, and you try and throw it all together and hope that it comes out with, you know, what's a good product. For you, you've been able to do some nice things in Cincinnati with your uh, time at Xavier and then even time uh, at WLW as a reporter. But then sometimes you have to make a move and to start moving up in the business. And for you, that move was Detroit. Uh, what were some of the big things that happened once you got to Detroit that allowed you to have some great experience in Michigan? And it was, Roger, an exciting thing that had happened and it kind of came out of the blue. I was contacted by the folks at WJR Radio in Detroit. And at that time, I was all of maybe 23 years old, 24 years old. And to go to a great sports market like that, a great media market, um, was exciting and, you know, kind of overwhelming at first. I didn't realize how it would be, but, you know, a lot of great broadcast talent at a lot of different stations, not just sportscasters, but a lot of other people. And, um, and I was very fortunate also when I got hired at WJR, oh, by the way, they said, we need somebody to do the Detroit Pistons. Uh, would you be willing to do that? Um, and it was a program, It was a, a, a basketball team that was coming off of some terrible seasons. It was the first full year after they had fired Dick Vitale. Um, and they were one of the worst teams in the league, although they led the league that year in forcing turnovers and steals. So it, it was fun watching a team play hard, but you know, it wasn't a terribly gifted team. Uh, and that was a great experience to kind of get started in things. And then a year later, I changed stations. Um, WJR was going to eventually give up the rights for the Pistons, so I switched and went across the street uh, to WWJ, which was an all-news radio station and a CBS affiliate, and one of five stations in the Detroit area that broadcast University of Michigan football and basketball. Um, the AD at Michigan at the time, Don Canham, uh, let pretty much anybody who wanted to do it do it because he would collect rights fees from all of these groups. So there wasn't just one set of announcers. There were five for football and three for basketball. And did that for six years up until an ownership change left a lot of us out of work. But uh, it, it was really an exciting experience to go to Detroit. Uh, to you know, And it was at a time where the automobile industry was struggling in the early 80s in the recession. And uh, seeing some of the struggles individually that people went through. But uh, to work with some great talent, to see some great teams. You know, I was fortunate to be there the year that the Tigers won the World Series in 84. Um, it, it really was a great experience, but uh, some wonderfully talented people that I had a chance to work with and to be around. Curious about your time doing Michigan games in the 80s, and you mentioned those uh, five different rights holders. Now, you know, it's all just one big network, you know, a lot of it under the Learfield IMG College brand like we are. But 
how did you try to make your broadcast stand out when you're going, knowing that there are four other Michigan broadcasts? And then what was your access like around the program, knowing that you had all these competitors as well that were trying to be the voice of the Wolverines in their own right? Well, the access was pretty limited. Um, and a lot of it because, you know, our station in Detroit was an hour away. And so there were some limitations because of that. But, you know, they, uh, other than former players who worked as analysts, you really didn't have a lot of access other than the weekly press meeting that uh, Bo Schembechler would have as the football coach. It was a little different with basketball. Um, but the station I worked for, again, it was an all-news radio station. And, and our approach was to pretty much play it right down the middle, to, you know, not get overly excited, overly emotional. Uh, the general manager that hired me knew I was from Ohio and knew that, uh, my mother was an Ohio State graduate, and he said that, that basically had worded to me, that gives us and gives you the kind of approach we want. Uh, the competitor station that we had in Detroit uh, had a wonderful gentleman by the name of Bob Eufer, who had done Michigan's games for a long time. Bob was known for, you know, screaming and yelling when they did well, crying and reading poetry when, when they would lose football games. And so our our approach was to be different to that, almost like a, uh, a neutral network broadcast. And uh, and that made it very enjoyable to be able to do it that way. And I'm interested because you get to the NBA, you get to do the Pistons there for a year at a very young age. What is it like? Because we, we've had Chip Carey on this podcast as well, and he had a similar situation where I believe he was, what, Roger, 23 years old when he right. was with the Orlando Magic. Um, so being that young and, and being in, in a league with so many experienced guys, what, what was that like? It was different because I was the same age as some of the players, uh, especially yeah. guys that were rookies or maybe in their first year. And um, in some ways, it allowed me to, to get a little, you know, traveling with them. It allowed me to get to know some of those guys a little bit more, maybe, than what would happen with a wide age difference. But it also was a reminder of how little I knew, uh, just as far as things like traveling, how to go about doing things uh, in an efficient way. Um, it was uh, it was very interesting, and I, I you know. Thought that oh this is great this will be a great run, uh, I, you know basketball was something that I really was attached to, uh, but then realized even before the season over it was over it was probably going to be just for one year, um, but really enjoyed it and I'd made a few uh, efforts at trying to see about getting back into NBA situations but none of them had ever happened uh, in the future years but it was something and actually as we're sitting here talking I have a uh, a framed uh, Detroit Pistons jersey that one of the players gave me his away jersey hanging on the wall here at the end of the season and uh, just for one year doing it um it, it really it, it makes me think very nicely being able to travel around the country to places that i had never been to see some of the old historic arenas the the crazy thing was though guys that uh, at that time there were only about 10 or 12 games that were done on tv and anytime the games were on tv we didn't do them on radio so because of that i never got to see the old boston garden i never got to see the la forum uh, so there were some games that I didn't get to call because of that. But uh, it, it is something when I think back and you know think of some of the, the guys who were on that team, uh, Kent Benson, Larry Drew, who's been a head coach in the NBA, Paul McKeskey, uh, Bob McAdoo for a time was on that team, and uh, Don Chaney, who had just retired from playing in the NBA, was an assistant coach. Scotty Robertson was the head coach. So it was uh, it, it really was a great thing for a young kid to be dropped into something. And obviously you've made your name in the in the college ranks, but you've done some professional stuff. We just mentioned the NBA. Um, you've done stuff in Major League Baseball with the Reds. Growing up a Reds fan, you've worked with the Bengals as well in the NFL. Once you get to Ohio State and you get to that spot, even before that, did you ever think that you wanted to take that professional route as opposed to the college sports route? 
Well, I, Kyle, I did uh, have a couple of opportunities to interview for some Major League Baseball jobs, and uh, they did not happen. And I think everybody that gets in this from a radio perspective would like to get involved with baseball just because of the, the magnetism that that sport has with radio. Uh, so it's fortunate to have a couple of interviews with a couple of different teams, but uh, none of them went anywhere. I, at one point, I was a finalist uh, for one team and was just thrilled to even be considered. The Bengals situation uh, kind of came out of the blue. I had returned back to Cincinnati after having been in Detroit and Washington, D.C., um, and was at WLW doing University of Cincinnati football and basketball, and the Bengals' job opened. A gentleman who was doing the game had left to take a TV job in another market. Since I was already there at the radio station, it was an easy fit. So in 1996, I got to do the Bengals for one year on radio. But it was only one year. Unfortunately, the Bengals were not happy with some things that were going on at the radio station. They decided to move their their rights elsewhere. I could not move because of being under contract. But what it led to was a good relationship with the Bengals. And for 10 years, I did their preseason games on television. So that was uh, an enjoyable thing. And quite honestly, I've, I've told a few people in the past, but had the Bengals situation continued, and I continued to do that for one of my hometown teams, it's very possible I might not have considered taking the Ohio State job when it came up. Uh, the red situation was kind of an off and on thing. I had filled in and done some games on radio. Uh, in the late 1990s, and then uh, in 2010, uh, and what the Reds had had, and they still have, they have a situation in television where they use two different play-by-play announcers. And uh, one of the gentlemen who had been doing it, George Grand, had retired. Uh, Tom Brenneman was the main TV announcer, and they needed somebody else to do a handful of the games that Tom would not do. I was fortunate to be able to uh, do that in 2010, do about 50 games. Uh, but the issue came because late in the season in September and because Tom at the time was doing NFL football and uh, the people with Reds and Fox Sports Ohio knew that my Ohio State job was my priority. During football season, there was a lot of times where neither of us were available and they would have to use a handful of fill-in people. So the decision was made. They, <clears throat> they needed to get somebody going forward that would be more available, especially at the end of the season. Uh, but it was pretty apparent, uh, long answer to a short question, Kyle, that, you know, the Ohio State situation, the college athletics is kind of where I'd been mostly involved in, and that's where I needed to put my main focus. We've had a lot of Marty Brenneman, uh, whether you want to call them fans, disciples, what have you, whether it's Bob Kessling or Neil Price, some college announcers who grew up big Reds fans, big fans of his. And we've also had Tommy Thrall, who's now in that chair now. They've talked about Marty a lot. And for you being a fan of the team and then getting to work around him just a little bit, what made Marty so great in that role as the everyday voice of the Reds on radio? Well, the first thing, Roger, was just his voice. He had one of those kind of voices that really grabbed a hold of you. And, and his very descriptive descriptions and the emotion and big things. I, I still remember so Marty's first season was 1974, and the Reds opened the season at home of the Atlanta Braves. And on opening day, Hank Aaron uh, tied the major league home run record, tying Babe Ruth's record. And that was Marty's first season doing the games. And he just was a guy that, you know, much like a lot of announcers who've done it with one team for a long time, his voice was just synonymous with that team. And the other great thing was Joe Nuxall, who was his partner, and Joe, uh, a Cincinnati area native, the youngest player ever to play in Major League Baseball. And, you know, I first heard Joe when he worked with Jim McIntyre and then with Al Michaels. And, and Joe and Marty just had such a great connection. And what really made them exciting and, and made them enjoyable was when there were difficult seasons. And when the Reds weren't very good, but you'd hear them talk about tomato plants or coffee table books or other things that just kind of interjected so much humor, as well as describing what was going on with baseball. I was fortunate to, to I think, just one series work with Marty when I filled in uh, for Joe Nuxall. But just a guy who 
because of his longevity, because of his enthusiasm and his descriptiveness, he was just your connection to the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah, he certainly did a great job for many, many years in that role. Absolutely. For you, uh, getting back to Ohio, as you mentioned, uh, that opportunity in the 90s to work with the Cincinnati Bearcats, the Bengals, uh, what led to the Ohio State opportunity for you? And I'm sure it was an attractive job, something you had on your radar for a long time, but uh, what was it about what led to you getting that job? Well, Roger, I didn't have it on my radar because I didn't know it was going to be available. <clears throat> I had, uh, had just finished in the situation where I had lost out on the opportunity to do the Bengals. Um, had interviewed with a major league baseball team that didn't happen so the thought was okay here you are and i was thrilled to be back in my hometown of cincinnati with family and friends and, and all of that so okay so here's here's you know where you put your focus you hunker down and you do what you're doing with the cincinnati bearcats there was some hope that the bengals opportunity might eventually circle around and out of the blue comes a phone call from a guy that i first knew when i first got into business in the late 1970s and he, at that time, was the executive producer of the Ohio State Network and called and said, uh, what's your situation? We think we may have a, a change about to occur and an opening that may come up. Uh, and I said, well, I would most certainly be interested in talking. Um, but at the time, what the initial discussion was is it would be to do Ohio State basketball first and possibly football the year later. And that wasn't something at first that appealed to me since I had both football and basketball with the Bearcats going on, but I at least went and talked. And when I met with all the particulars, uh, they said, well, if you're interested, football will be part of it right away. So that kind of changed the whole thing. But, but to answer your question, Roger, it was from somebody that I knew when I first got into business and had not talked to in over 20 years. So that kind of goes to, I'm sure you guys have heard the stories about you know, the connections and the acquaintances and the people you meet. You never know where it's going to circle around. Um, so it led to <clears throat> really about a month of discussions, and it was really kind of stressful. Uh, but then when I, you know, trying to decide leaving a job that you really enjoyed in your hometown, only going two hours away, uh, to what was a phenomenal opportunity, and eventually at one point when I realized, hey, neither decision is going to be a bad decision, that kind of removed the stress. And uh, talking it over with my parents and my father in particular, uh, it was just one of those you realized this is the kind of a job that doesn't come along very often. Uh, he'd be regretful to not take it. And uh, so in 1998, I made the decision. Um, and uh, here, 23 years later, it's been a lot of fun. And how did you handle in that journey leading up to Ohio State? Because you had mentioned that a couple of jobs have gone away because of rights fees. And I think that happens a lot uh, in this business, the disappointment of having a job and necessarily not doing anything wrong to lose that job. It's just one of those things where it's a contract and stations, you know, teams move stations. So how did you handle all of that disappointment leading up to eventually getting to your, your lifetime gig, which is in Ohio State? Well, the, the good thing, Kyle, was in each of those situations that it happened, whether it was the Bengals, and it also happened with the University of Cincinnati, where they had changed rights and uh, had a stretch for two years where I didn't do the games. Uh, but as you said, it helps when you know that it's not because of anything you did. And there was a lot of great uh, support from the people involved with particular radio stations, with the teams. Uh, you know, the Bengals in particular, as well as the University of Cincinnati, they had, when they made those moves, they had very, very clearly communicated to me that, you know, this was not a reflection of anything I had done. They wished that it could continue. Um, so you just kind of, it's a disappointment, but you, you just tackle what's next. Uh, the good thing with the Ohio State situation, uh, the radio station that I work for, WBNS in Columbus, has had the rights for a very long time 
had a very long, at that point, and still a very long commitment as far as a rights connection. So uh, that was, and also the other part of it too, um, you know, in Cincinnati, the station I was at, WLW, they had the Reds, they had the Bengals, they had the University of Cincinnati, they had Xavier. So there was a lot of jockeying with who gets on the air what. Uh, with WBNS in Columbus, and it was prior to the Blue Jackets beginning play, but Ohio State was going to be the priority. And uh, even though we do still carry the Blue Jackets, uh, you know, their con- their conflicts, they're shipped off to another frequency. But but knowing the commitment that our company had to Ohio State and vice versa, that that was very reassuring. What's the key to sustain like sustained success at a high profile position? Because when you get to the top of the ladder, there are you know critics, whether it's positive, whether it's negative. How do you deal with all of that, and how do you continue to just do your job at a high level, even though that you have a lot more eyes and ears on you in a position like that? Well, Kyle, you just try and keep fooling them as long as you can. No, <laughs> it's it, probably the first thing is just continue to work at it and not have the feeling that you've arrived and you've nailed it. You know, stay humble. Uh, yeah, you're going to have the critics and the social media aspect of things really opens the door for those folks and understand that. You know, you're not going to please everybody. Uh, you know, you, you, the people you need to please the most are your employers. And if you're doing what they feel is a good job, then that's the most important. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of flattery that comes from positive comments and things like that. And you, you take that with a grain of salt, too. You take it as appreciation. Uh, be grateful for it. But uh, most most importantly is just continue to work at it. Continue to think about how you can get better. Um, you know, continue to... You know, like you guys know from doing this kind of stuff, you you can never prepare too much. You know, keep doing that. Uh, Don't go into it haphazardly. Uh, Everybody probably always feels like they could prepare more. It's like studying for a test for school. You wish you had done a little more, but you have to prepare as best you can and, you know, not paralyze yourself by driving yourself crazy overall. So it's just, you know, and and also the other thing, guys, that I really try to make a priority out of is the people that I work with. Uh, you know, whether it's your analyst, your producer, your engineer, the salespeople, other people on the air, be mindful of their contributions and understand it's not just about you. It's about the whole group. And you can't do what you do if the other people uh, aren't successful at doing what they do and vice versa. So knowing that it's a team effort uh, and I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of wonderful people uh, and understanding that their efforts are part of what makes the whole thing come up well. And it had to be enjoyable early in your tenure as the voice of the Buckeyes. There was a lot of success. You look at the 2002 National Championship for the Buckeyes. You're able to get some great moments right off the bat, some Final Four runs. How much did that help you kind of settle in knowing that you're with a winner and everybody loves listening to a winner? You know, Roger, it it was really good. But I will say to you also, and this kind of ties into my time at the University of Cincinnati, especially when their football program was struggling. Um, you still understand that even when a program is having difficult times, they're still loyal fans. Um, you know, Cincinnati's football program rarely was on TV at that time, uh, rarely had successful seasons, but they had a great, strong fan base, and people were kind of anchored into knowing what they were doing. But when there is success, in um, my first year doing Ohio State, they went to the Final Four in 1999 after they had lost 20 games the year before. Now, it's a Final Four that's since been vacated, but it really kind of took people by storm. Uh, they had not been to a Final Four since 1968. Uh, then seeing what football had done. Uh, 2002, a year that <clears throat> they won a national championship that nobody saw coming. They, really, everybody thought the next year would be the year they might contend for one. But to see some of that excitement, uh, you know, to, to see 
the great achievements of these players and these coaches. Uh, you know, two national championships during the course of this time, uh, two more Final Fours under Thad Mata, uh, and, and really another team that probably was his best shot at winning a national championship that lost in the Sweet 16 in uh, 2011. So those, those make it enjoyable. It makes it a thrill. Um, but it's also, you have to remember, too, even when seasons aren't going well, there's still people that are listening. There's still people that are fans. And you have to put just as much into it when maybe the season isn't going well, sometimes maybe more than when it is going well. And then sometimes as well, even when a season's not going well, or sometimes the season can be going well, but there are off-the-field issues that are going on. We've seen that at times with the Urban Meyer era as well as Coach Tressel. Uh, how do you try to navigate those relationships, knowing what's weighing down on a coach at that time, but to make sure that when they're with you for a coach's show or an interview, you're keeping things positive for Ohio State? Well, a long time ago, Roger, somebody gave me a piece of advice, and I'm sure you guys have heard it too, is you have to be careful about the relationships you have with the coaches and the athletes that you cover, because there are going to be times where difficult things will happen, whether it's a losing season, whether there's a coaching change, whether, you know, any type of thing like that. So you, the first thing you have to do is just be mindful of the facts. Um, also, secondly, uh, you know, try, and especially when you're in a situation like we're in, when you, you're the rights holder and you're, you're not trying to cover anything up, but you're also not trying to fan the fire either, if, if that makes any sense to you guys. So in those in those situations that we've seen, you know, perfect example was, you know, when Jim O'Brien was dismissed as a basketball coach and there were NCAA rules violations. And, and Jim was a guy who really made Ohio State basketball meaningful for the first time in a while. But, you know, you had to report and talk about what had gone on. And uh, it was unfortunate to see not only for him and his coaches, but the players and the other people affected. Uh, same thing when uh, John Cooper was let go. Uh, John Cooper was one of the most wonderful people you'll ever be around. And John Cooper will also be the first person to tell you that if he'd beaten Michigan more and won more bowl games, then he still would have been a head coach. But he understood the business. Um, kind of the same thing with, um, you know, when Jim Tressel's time came to an end with, with all of the things that had happened with improper benefits. Um, you know, the Urban Meyer situation was one that was very unique because it involved, and in, in, you know, having to interview him at media day after all of this had come up. But you know, kind of asking the tough questions and then dispensing with that and getting on to the other things. Um, and, you know, and, and I think most of these coaches understand that you have a job to do uh, and as long as they don't get the impression that you're trying to, you know, blindside them with some things. Uh, I, I will tell you the one story that's been kind of the exception to all of that, though, was uh, Thad Mata, who went 13 years as a basketball coach at Ohio State. Uh, a wonderful guy, got to know he and his family and his in-laws very well. And and kind of the exception with forming a relationship with a coach that you work with. And, you know, Thad's time came to an end in a less than ideal situation. But also knowing that, you know, Thad was in a good place. You know, he was being paid for three more years by Ohio State after he left. And his biggest concern was his assistant coaches. What was going to happen to them and their families? And that tells you something about him. But, yeah, those are difficult situations. You just have to try and approach them as, as professionally as you can and, and do what you do based on, on the facts that are out there. And me being a Florida guy, I'm interested, you know, what was Urban Meyer like in that interview setting, you know, talking with Mick, uh, Mick Hubert here at Florida? He said he was, he was a tough guy to, to interview, he was a tough nut to crack, and of course you have the Nick Sabans of the world at Alabama. What was your experience like with him, and did he make you a better interviewer? Because he almost, a guy like that forces you to ask questions and not just give statements. Did, did he make you better in a way? Well, Kyle, I, I talked with Mick uh, about that. I mean, a lot of us, 
when you meet announcers, one of the things you talk about is, hey, what's what's this coach like to deal with and things like that? And Nick and I talked prior to Ohio State and Florida playing in the national championship game. And I understood the struggles that Nick went through. Urban was difficult here. Um, he at first he was good. He he understood it. But Urban was a challenge. And the, one of the things I realized early, it wasn't personal. It wasn't anything about you. Uh, but Urban, it, doing all of the interviews he was contractually obligated to was not his favorite thing to do. We pester these coaches for a lot here. Uh, and Urban would grumble about it. Uh, but he'd also enough times make it clear, hey, it's not about you. It's just I, I don't like doing these. And uh, so it was a challenge. It, 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 a lot of it because Urban would give short answers. Uh, but when he answered questions and all of that, he was very forthcoming. Um, the funny part about it, Kyle, is last year, his first year out of coaching at Ohio State, but I'd see him around the facility, and he came up to me one time, and uh, he says, you know, you were such a professional about that, and I didn't make it easy on you, did I? And I just said, nice to see you, Coach. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, was, it probably took more pre-planning for questions for any coach that I've ever had to deal with, mostly because you knew he didn't want to do it, and you had to try and find ways whether they were questions specific to what was going on or softball questions or off-topic questions, something that would really get him in a mood to want to talk because it wasn't something that he did very easily. It's funny because, you know, now he makes his money in the media essentially yes. doing that job, and I think that's the, the funny juxtaposition. But what do you see the role of the, the voice of a big college football basketball program is now because we have such in-depth uh, coverage on television. You have streaming now. You have all these blogs that disseminate all this information on Twitter. Uh, what, wh where do you see that role now as the voice of a school? Has it changed over the years? I think it's changed because of the number of things you have to do. It, it, Kyle, it starts obviously with a game broadcast and you know doing the best you can with those. And you know, yes, at programs like Ohio State and at Florida and at Alabama, all the games are on TV. But there's still a need for radio and over-the-air radio because you have, and I'm sure you guys hear it from people too, but the folks that have to take their kids to their games or the guys that are working on Saturdays or that are driving, you know, they can't be slaves to the TV screen. So there, there's that audience and there's that need for that. Um, but the role also is interviews with the coaches and or players as they're made available to you. Uh, it's also uh, coaches shows, uh, other ancillary programs that you have on your network that tie into those things. Um, you know, there gets to be, you know, some social media responsibilities, whether it's podcasts or things like that. That's not something I've been asked to do a lot of, but I know other guys have. Um, and a lot of it because of the daily responsibilities that I have with our radio station. But it's also if the university wants you to emcee an event, if they want you to do this public service announcement, if they want you to record their Hall of Fame inductions. It's a lot of that stuff that comes apart. The, the Alumni Association, obviously this year they couldn't do a lot of it, but if they have requests, uh, to be at events, whether they're in the state of Ohio or outside of the state of Ohio. So it kind of takes in a lot of different things. And, you know, you do like coaches and athletes, you have to get to the point where you can say no at sometimes because you do want to have a life. But uh, it, it involves a lot of those things and probably a lot of others, guys, that I'm not even thinking about. Well, for you getting ready for an Ohio State football game and you've got Nebraska coming up next week, can you just kind of take us through your week of preparation, getting ready for Saturday and what's most important to you to make sure you have ready to go for Saturday? Well, Roger, the first thing you do is, uh, you know, and it's always a challenge for week one, but that's to get your game chart together and get, you know, both schools, uh, unless it's Michigan, will provide you with a two deep. So, you know, and everybody does their game charts differently. So it's mostly getting the names and numbers laid out on your chart, how you do it, getting stats, 
getting those updated, adding them as you want, uh, getting the biographical information on players, and especially those players that are going to play a lot. Uh, you have weekly press conferences with the head coaches. This year, they're all going to be virtual. They won't be in attendance. Uh, you know, reading as many articles as you can. It's the newspaper or the other websites that cover the team, cover both teams, actually. Um, we have a weekly one-hour coaches show with Ryan Day. Uh, we have a two-hour Monday night Ohio State football show that we ship out on our network with three people on the air. Uh, but mostly just taking the time to work on your game chart, get your interview. We have an hour-and-a-half network pregame show uh, that involves a number of different pre-recorded interviews, getting that all pieced together each week, writing the scripts for all of that. Um, hopefully by the time the season starts, but sometimes not always, whatever commercials they want you to do, you get pre-recorded. You get those done, and you get those in the system. So, And the other thing that I try to do, and I'm sure you know other people, and you, know, you guys probably do it yourselves with your sports, and that is, once the season starts, recording the upcoming opponent on DVR and watching that, you know, watching their previous game. I, I do it at least two times, if I can, three times, just to familiarize yourself with names and numbers of running backs, receivers, uh, linebackers, defensive backs, guys that are going to be around the ball the fastest to help you with your recognition of, of names and numbers, formations, substitution patterns, things like that. So it's, it's a lot of that that goes into the whole week leading up to Saturdays. And you mentioned the first thing you do is get the spotting board ready to go. We understand you have a uh, example from a past game. If you could just hold it up to the camera and again, just kind of explain uh, how you do it, why you do it, the way you do. Well, I don't know if this will make any sense, but uh, this is from last year's game in the national semifinals with Clemson. So on one side here is Ohio State's offense, Clemson's defense, flip to the other side, vice versa. So what I do is type the names and uh, hometowns and classes on mailing labels and then put them on a legal size manila envelope. And then I'll add stats like for running backs, average yards per game, total yards, number of touchdowns, quarterbacks, completion percentage, uh, total yards passing, touchdowns, interceptions, rushing yards, same thing with receivers, but then add a lot of other biographical notes, whether they were all conference, uh, some especially the younger players, some of their high school statistics. So on offense, I'll have the, uh, the running backs up at the top, the quarterback in the middle, offensive line, at the bottom, receivers on the side, kickers and punters on top. And then on the defensive side, defensive line, linebackers and defensive backs. Um, usually many different colors of ink, just kind of as my own prompts of what they are. If anybody else sat down and looked at it, it probably wouldn't make much sense at all. But, but I think what you'll find too, Roger, is so many guys over the years try different styles, different routines, and finally get to something that works. Um, and you, you just have to make it something that works for you. And I notice everything, a lot of the notes are handwritten. Does it does it kind of sink into the brain a little bit better because you're handwriting it down? I notice when I do that, it works a little better that way. Is that the same for you? Absolutely, Kyle. There's, it's, it's funny. <clears throat> a few years now, quite a few years ago, somebody approached me about a, uh, a person who prepares some of the charts for some of the uh, network TV NFL announcers and, and suggested, hey, this guy could probably do yours for you. Well, now it's doing it yourself. It's like writing out your notes from school. It, it is part of helping familiarize yourself with it, and you know where it is, too, for the most part. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the stats and a lot of those things are handwritten, other than what I type on the labels. But it is just to try and get it to sink into your mind a little more. How much of the stats are you using on the broadcast? Because a lot of us, and I think especially younger broadcasters, we use you know numbers as a crutch a little bit just to kind of fill space when it's not necessary. But... 
what do you think is the good balance of, of utilizing statistics on a, on a radio broadcast? Kyle, kind of the best answer I could give to you on that is uh, the use of them as it feels becomes natural. Um, and, and the more you do it, the more you kind of get a feeling for it yourself. You don't want to feel like you're shoehorning in a stat just to get it in there. Um, you know, if a running back, you know, his gets a long run, you know, say, okay, so his average is 5.3 per carry. A long run will help his average. When a guy scores a touchdown, okay, it's his 10th touchdown of the year. Um, you know, what, what a team on, on a third down situation, what their third down percentage is. When they get an interception, it's the, the player's third interception of the year, the team's 10th interception of the season. So the stats are important, but I think if you can figure out a way to make them fit the natural flow of the game and not feel like you're just putting them in there, that's, at least in my mind, that's kind of the best way to use them. What about with description? You know, all of us, you know, know we can describe things a million different ways, add the different colors of things, direction, all of these different things. But how do you try to balance describing as much as you can, painting the best picture you can, while also making sure the information gets out there and nothing feels too stuffed in or anything like that? Well, and you said it, Roger, that it doesn't feel too stuffed in. But the description is probably in many cases more important than the stats um because if you think of it yourself you're sitting there listening to a game on the radio uh and you hear that a guy's run around the right side of the offensive line or they've thrown the ball into the right corner of the end zone uh, knowing that they're at uh, the ohio state 40 as opposed to the nebraska 40. Um, and the other part in that too is when there's a little bit of a gap or a pause it's never a bad thing to put the time and score out there so being for radio being as descriptive as possible is never a bad thing. Uh, you know, describing the uniform colors, describing when there are fans, what the fans are reacting like, what the weather's like, what the stadium looks like. Um, those are just kind of the, the key pieces on radio that that, that can never be overdone. Um, and, and I'm just, I, I'm anal when it comes to, you know, right side of the court, left side of the court, top of the key, uh, goes around the right side of the line, uh, near the 50-yard line. Those are the things that, just in my mind, I'm always listening for as a fan, listening to games, and try to translate that into how we approach doing the games. So kind of with that in mind as well, especially on radio where time and score is the most important thing, painting the picture right after that, then there's the analyst. And a lot of fans do want to hear your analyst on football and basketball. How do you make sure they get enough time in to where they're not taking away from the fundamentals of radio play-by-play -play that you feel like are important? Try to be as concise as possible when a play ends uh, so that when the play is done and you identify the tackler, you, if you can identify the yard line, then that opens the door for the analyst. And conversely, then they have to also be mindful of, okay, as, as a team is getting ready to go to the line of scrimmage, that they give you the time to set the formation, give the down and distance again and things like that. So always trying to think about making sure to, on a particular play, whether it's football or basketball, to wrap it as quickly as possible to give the analysts the opportunity to do their thing. And, and you obviously do more fast-paced sports, football and basketball, and it's a different skill set than baseball. And for me, especially starting out, I would tend to kind of ramp up my pace a little bit too much, and I think that's the biggest thing young broadcasters do is we tend to go a million miles a minute. Do you have any tricks in, in trying to slow yourself down in, in calling fast-paced sports? Interesting question, Kyle. I've never thought of that. Uh, and I know a lot of it is just excitement about doing what you're doing, especially when it's a big game or a big stakes game. Um, the only thing to suggest is just kind of 
mentally get yourself focused on all the things we've been just talking about. And that is, okay, you, you want to be as sharp as you can about identifying the players. You want to still be thinking about giving down and distance, giving the time, all of that stuff, giving the score. Um, and, and once the game gets going, immerse yourself into the descriptive parts and the broadcasting part of it. You try to, you know, not ignore the importance of a big game or something like that. But it, it, and it's, it kind of comes into the category of when you stop being a fan. Um, it's great when I can sit here at home and be a, a fan of my favorite hometown teams and watch them and I can holler and yell and throw stuff at the TV or something like that. But, you know, it, you have to kind of get yourself in a different mental place. Even though these teams you're broadcasting for, you want to see them do well. You want to see them have success. But you're also watching it a little differently than you are at home, one of your favorite teams. So that's maybe the, the biggest suggestion, the biggest thought, Kyle, that I could have when it comes to that. We talked a lot about football play-by-play, play, but for you, when you're locked in doing basketball, what makes for great basketball on the radio? Being able to keep up with the play, being able to identify the players quickly on the fly. Um, and, you know, you guys have listened to basketball games also. Sometimes you'll hear when something's happened, whether it's a crab reaction or something, and maybe the announcer isn't quite up to pace with all of it, and that's the thing you want to avoid. It's easy to have happen with a sport that goes at that kind of pace. That's why I have great appreciation for hockey announcers, and I, I don't understand the sport well enough to do it. But, uh, but for basketball, just being able to keep up with the pace, and sometimes it doesn't involve having to always describe every pass or every dribble or, or all of that, because you also want to give space for your analysts too. But just being able to, to keep up with the pace um, and keep up with the other visual traffic, audible trappings, I should say, uh, the crowd noise when a basket gets made or a shot gets blocked or a steal, that's probably what makes it really, really good. And at Ohio State, is your spot a little elevated? You're not exactly courtside. Or do you like having that kind of elevated vision? I did a game at Penn State last year where I kind of liked being a little higher up and kind of seeing the full picture that way. I do, Roger, and here's why. As you've seen in a lot of arenas now, <clears throat> they are putting radio announcers uh, on the floor uh, next to benches sometimes. And if you're next to a team bench, you've got coaches, players, officials, they get in your way. Now, if you're going to be on the floor and they can put you outside of where the TV announcers are, that's an ideal spot. Uh, so what we did probably maybe 17 years ago at Ohio State, we started on the floor when this building opened, uh, but we were at the scorer's table near the bench, and we asked them to move us up. So we're about 25 rows off the floor. We're kind of parallel with one of the backboards, but we've got more space to work. You've got unblocked vision of what's going on. And I know that, you know, Bob Kessling and before him, John Ward at Tennessee, they were known for the elevated spot. Minnesota has done that also. Uh, Penn State, you mentioned. The one thing about Penn State, you got to make sure you bring your own light because it's a little dark up there. Yes. Where they <laughs> um, but I do like the elevated spot. If you're, you know, like 10 to 20 rows up, I, I wish the NCAA tournament would do that um, because it does give you unencumbered view of what's going on in the court. And you'd much rather have that than be down like at the foul line or below. Because what happens there sometimes, if the ball gets in the opposite corner from where you are in the short corner, it's hard to see because of the bodies you have to look through sometimes. So, uh, yeah, but we're, we're about 25 rows up um, and gives us plenty of space to work with. Uh, it's unfortunate, though, that, that radio sometimes, not only at the collegiate level for basketball, but I, from what I understand, the NBA, they're really – giving you some very undesirable positions. But, you know, what we've seen now, some of the places, 
they're putting you in a corner up off the floor. And that takes a little adjustment. It's not the worst thing in the world. I would much rather do that than be next to a bench where you have players and coaches in your room. And speaking of kind of vision as you're calling the sports, I'm curious what you do for football play-by-play. Do you use binoculars as you're calling the game? Or I know some announcers will use binoculars. They see a pass. They put the binoculars down, look back at the field of play. Uh, How do you kind of go through your normal football calling? Is it a lot of binocular use or a monitor or anything like that? Well, Roger, it's changed over recent years, and it's it's a lot of binocular use now. But I, I have to give credit because uh, I was made aware um, first through Tony Caridi at West Virginia and then Dan Horde at the University of Cincinnati of these Bushnell wide-angle binoculars that uh, a lot of other guys now have started using. And you can use that as a play is going on and get a wide angle of the field. I, I really struggled with having to do that at first, thinking about doing it. But using these binoculars makes a big difference. It's, it's also very much in need in Columbus. The press box we have at Ohio State is very, very high. One of the highest that you probably ever be at. But we're in a great spot between the 40s. Um, you know, there are some places now where the, the locations aren't ideal. A lot of the NFL stadiums, the newer ones, they're putting you in the corner of the end zone. But the wide-angle binoculars make it easier, not easy, but easier to have them up on your eyes as a play is going on and being able to see a wide angle of the field. Uh, the regular vision binoculars, that, that's a challenge. It's, I used to use those mostly just to check for substitutions and things like that. But with the wide angle binoculars, it's made it considerably easier. And to piggyback off of that, how do you utilize your spotter? I'm sure your spotter has those same wide angle binoculars. What are some of the things that um, they're helping you out with in the booth? Well, I'm going to miss my spotter this year. We're not going to be able to have our spotter because of the restrictions that press boxes are having and everything. But uh, what I use the spotter for is uh, for defense, to watch for tackles, to help me with tackles, interceptions. And I'm very fortunate. The spotter I use is a cousin of mine here in Columbus who was a a defensive lineman in college. He played at uh, Otterbein College here in Columbus. So he's kind of got a knack for watching for all of that. So, you know, I know some people use them for offense and all of that, but I use a spotter just for defense, just for tackles. Uh, but what these wide-angle binoculars have helped do, uh, probably 80 to 85% of the time I can spot who it is just as quickly as the spotter does. And we talked a lot about preparation and especially leading up to a game, but I feel like there's a lot of nuggets you can get day of from when you see the visiting radio guy or when you see the TV people or you see somebody down on the field. How much information collection are you doing day of game? I know you have to do a pregame show, so you can't be out and about and doing a million things. But are you talking to a lot of people on the day of the game at the stadium? Absolutely, Kyle. We, we usually, the day of the game, in normal circumstances, it probably won't happen this year. But we'll do an interview with the opposing radio announcer, and that's a good person to get some information from. Uh, the sports information director, not only from Ohio State and his assistants, but also of the opposing team, generally are helpful with notifying you about things like if there are number changes, uh, issues with duplicate numbers, uh, players that maybe aren't on the travel roster who aren't playing because of injury or whatever. Uh, so that's very important to try and get. Sometimes you don't get much. Sometimes you don't need much. But the day of the game, now, we're also kind of limited, too, because we're on the air an hour and a half before kickoff. But the day of the game, you can solicit a fair amount of information. Sometimes there isn't a need for it, but you don't know that until you talk to some of those folks. 
Of course, all of us use our voice and we all have a God-given voice. And for you, it's one that is instantly recognizable and strong. How do you make sure you continue to keep have good voice health as you go throughout the season, especially when it's you know football and cold weather, you got the window open, then you're right back into a basketball game the next day. Just, well, how important is voice health for you and what have you learned about voice health over the years? Well, thank you for the nice comments, Roger. One of the things that um, I had to give up cigars. I used to, during the summer, maybe once a weekend, have a cigar. I, for the most part, have given those up. Um, but, you know, a number of years ago, I had an ear, nose, and throat doctor that I met with, and he said it's kind of like a pitcher in his arm. You need to learn to rest your voice. Uh, more than anything, just not talking. Uh, you know, because and, and he said that not, you'd be surprised. Announcers are not the people that he has as his biggest customers. It was teachers. We're doing a lot of talking all day. and But the advice is always rest your voice when you can. Don't always talk. When you live alone, that helps a lot. You don't really have anybody to talk to, and that's not a bad thing. But it, it more than anything, it's just resting it. It's um, you know, all of the things that people would normally do. Also being mindful, if you start to feel like you've got something coming, do whatever works for you as far as whether it's medication, cough drops, steam, sauna. Uh, the YMCA I belong to has a fantastic steam room, so I always try and make use of that a lot. Uh, the month of November is where it can be a challenge when you have the overlap of football and basketball. Fortunately, the folks at the radio station that I work for, they're at that time of year, they're pretty good about absolving me from not all, but some of the daily things that I have to do as far as top of the hour sportscasts and things like that when it gets to be that time of year. But the biggest thing is, you know, learn whatever trick works for you, whether it's hot tea and honey and lemon or all of that. But, but the, the biggest thing is just at times resting your voice. Yeah, what are some of those tricks? What do you like to have, like, as a beverage beside you during a game? Any foods you try to avoid on game day? Anything like that that's kind of your go-tos uh, for game day? Well, if I avoided a lot of that food, I'd probably shed the 20 pounds I'd like to. <laughs> um, no, and more than anything, Roger, what I try to do is, um, you know, every, you know, have water there. But the thing I try to do is not have too much of anything to drink, especially once we go on the air, to uh, limit the call of nature. Um, one of the first things we do when we go to a press box or an arena that we've not been to is find out where's the closest bathroom because your time is limited when you can do that. So nothing particular. I'm a, I'm a coffee drinker, but try not to get crazy with that. Uh, you know, the, the tea and honey has not been something that I've been drawn to an awful lot, but I know it does work for some people. There's a lot of wives tales about that. I've heard, uh, one of my coworkers has told me that, uh, that, uh, she knows that, getting Dr. Pepper and heating it up in a saucepan and drinking it warm like that can be something that I've not tried it. I don't know. Um, but uh, th there's not anything I really try to particularly avoid. Uh, what I try to avoid, especially when it's close to going on the air, is drinking a whole lot of anything. And and I'm interested, too, uh, away from the, the beverages, but just the, the relationship with the fans, the Ohio State fans, being a voice of a big program for so long, like, can you go to the grocery store without somebody saying, like, hey, Paul, what do you what do you think about the game this weekend? Or what do you think about our basketball team coming up? Is, is that is that something that happens a lot to you? Kyle, it surprises me when it does. Um, you know, I forget the little bit of exposure from having done a few things on TV adds to that. But also when you start speaking to somebody, that's they recognize your voice. And, and folks are most always very flattering and very complimentary. Um, but it still catches me off guard and surprises me. And I. You know, I, I'm one of those, I don't like to draw the attention to myself a lot. So usually what I'll try to do is start talking to them about themselves. And you know, so what do you do? And, and things like that. And, you know, where do you live? Oh, you know, what's your family situation? Um, but it is flattering and it's very nice that people do do that. 
Final question for me, your favorite football road vantage point in the Big Ten, and then we'll do it for football and basketball. What do you got? Huh. Football on the road, I would probably say, now there's a number of factors that go into this. Um, so as far as uh, location, view, but also size, meaning the amount of booth. Because we normally, we have five people in our booth during the course of a game. We won't have that this year. I would say that there are two of them, and that would be Michigan. And Michigan did a great job when they remodeled their press box. They used their radio engineer to help design some of those. And Minnesota, their new stadium in Minneapolis, which is, uh, we don't go there very often. Uh, but those are probably the two as far as size of booth, vantage point, things like that, that are probably the two best. In basketball, as far as on the road, I would say Indiana. Indiana is another one that's a little elevated, about maybe 15 rows off the floor. Now it's tight, and we have three people in our basketball crew, but Indiana is probably the best vantage point. It used to be Iowa, but they moved everybody to the floor. Uh, the, the Penn State vantage point, and you mentioned it, Roger, that, that one is, is not bad. Uh, again, it's dark, so you have to bring your own light, but, but overall I would probably say Indiana. Well, that's certainly good to hear. And one of the things that we always talk about, especially as we start to wrap things up, we always get some advice from the broadcasters. And a lot of them say, don't worry about the destination. It's the journey that's the part of it. And I think for you, when I look at all that you've done in your career, whether it's Major League Baseball at the Reds, the NFL with the Bengals, the NBA with the Pistons, you can go on and on and on. All the great college experience from Ohio State, Michigan, Cincinnati, and even your days at Xavier. Does that really ring true to you? It's been an enjoyable journey to me, no matter what you're doing in your career. You've been proud of the journey you've had, I'm sure. Absolutely, Roger. And, I, and the thing that I can tell you guys that makes it the most enjoyable are the people that you meet, uh, whether they're the people at the universities that you deal with, sports information departments, coaches, support staff, athletes, uh, the people at your radio stations and your network, um, clients, the people who advertise, and there's a handful of those that I've gotten to be friends with away from work. Um, you know, over all of these years, since I started in this in 1979, one of the most amazing things are the people you get to know, the other announcers from other schools. I, it, for example, last weekend we had a group of uh, the Big Ten radio announcers together for a weekend of a couple of days of golf and dinner, um, and and it was just incredibly wonderful. But you know whether it's the announcers in the Big Ten, whether it's people like Eli Golden, Chris Stewart, um, Mick Hubert, whether it's guys like uh, West Durham for the Atlanta Falcons and the ACC, just some of the wonderful people you get to know. Uh, I've been fortunate to have great relationships with some of the salespeople at our stations and our networks. Uh, people at stations that I've worked with in the past that I still stay in touch with. Uh, and it is, as you've said, Roger, it, it's it's the journey, but it's the people you come across that you really enjoy, you learn from, but you enjoy being around them and you become friends with them outside of you. Well, we've learned a lot from you today, Paul. This has been a very enjoyable hour getting to hear about your career and thoughts on broadcasting. We just thank you for your time, and we wish you the best of luck next week when Ohio State football is able to play. And who knows, maybe I'll see you down the road at the college football playoff. That certainly would be good. Uh, maybe Kyle, too. Maybe the Gators will sneak back in there after that brutal loss to a but... <laughs> but thank you again for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Glad to do it, and all the best to you guys, too. Thanks, Paul. All right, thank you to Paul Keels of Ohio State, and thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour. So long, everyone.